My guest today is Professor Emil Martinek, who is Professor of Physics at the Enrico Fermi Institute and the College of the University of Chicago. His research focuses on string theory and particle physics. Welcome, Emil. Hi. Yeah, so, you know, this feels like, I was telling you, this feels like uh, proof that parallel universes exist because we, seems to, we seem to be meeting in different space-time, but maybe not space, but at least different time coordinates uh, over three. three it's at least a periodic event. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I learned a lot last couple of days. Um, most of the things I had no understanding about and still don't. Um, so we talked about the, the four fundamental forces. We talked about um, there is an innate desire to, to sort of unify them. So their gravity, electromagnetism, strong and weak force inside the new inside the atom. Um, there's a strong desire to unite them, but we haven't been able to do that. Uh, we spent some time in the last session on two famous theories, uh, Einstein's theory of gravity, general theory of relativity, as it's often referred to, and um, uh, the quantum mechanics. Um, and both of them are exceptionally uh, successful in, in different scales, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, and so this idea that we can unite them in a grand unification process remained with us for nearly 70 years now, yeah. at least, uh, maybe more. Uh, and there have been multiple attempts at this. So I want to take a bit of a historical perspective on this, and then we'll come to sort of the real string theory <laughs> when you were working on it at, uh, at Princeton. Uh, but I want to rewind time a little bit, a little bit back. It sort of set the context for what unification means. So, Kaluza-Klein theory. So I don't quite know the the timeline of this, but perhaps in the 1920s. Yes. Um, taking sort of Einstein's equation and then saying I can add a vector to it to sort of combine electromagnetism with it, right? So that was attempt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, so the um, what uh, Kaluza and Klein did uh, not within a decade of Einstein's development of Einstein's theory was uh, it's just sort of like you know mathematical game playing in some sense, um, saying, well, you know, what if space time wasn't the three dimensions of space and one of time that we observe around us, but suppose um, space-time was four dimensions of space and one of time. And uh, furthermore, well, so so we obviously don't observe four dimensions. So so let's make the extra dimension a circle, a very, very tiny circle, so microscopic that we wouldn't detect it uh, using the, the, you know, accelerators and other microscopes that we had at, at the time, okay? And so let's just write down Einstein's theory on this geometry, which is um, three dimensions of space, one of time, and then an extra circle. And so you write down Einstein's theory in that geometry and see what the equations are. Um, and there's a way of rewriting the Einstein equations uh, in one higher dimension 
as a theory in ordinary space-time, um, uh, which has Einstein's theory plus Maxwell's theory plus an additional scalar field. Uh, and so it's a, it's a way of sort of packaging the content of Maxwell plus Einstein into a theory in one higher dimension. Um, and so this was, if you like, one of the early attempts at you know, unification, that there's one underlying force, namely gravity, and Maxwell's theory is sort of a byproduct of thinking about gravity in higher dimensions. Yeah, so we, so we deal with matrix in, um, in engineering, and uh, this sort of feels familiar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, so that scalar field is sort of a mystery field in the corner. Uh, but then um, it, it seems to sort of fit, right? Um, so, what so what the scalar represents is the size of the extra circle. Hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we don't observe a scalar field in nature of that sort. Um, at least, you know, experimentally, as far as we can tell, there's no scalar field, which at least no massless or light scalar field, you know, that we, we would see, for instance, cosmologically uh, uh, is, you know, maybe dark energy or something. Is Higgs uh, considered a scalar field? Higgs is a scalar field. Um, but the scalar field that comes out of the Kaluza-Klein theory only has gravitational couplings. Hmm. And so uh, the Higgs is, is, first of all, charged. Uh, under this, under Maxwell electromagnetism, and so since this scalar field doesn't have any charge, it can't be the Higgs. Right. And so um, it, it seemed elegant at that time, but it didn't really go anywhere, right? That's right. Um, uh, well, uh, yeah. So it was sort of, it was sort of, you know, a, a pretty idea. Um, and people didn't quite know what to make of it. So it sort of, you know, was developed and people thought about it from time to time, uh, uh, but uh, not in any serious way because it didn't really seem to connect with the rest of particle physics in any way that we could understand. Um, but it has some foundational characteristics, would you say? I mean, this idea of a, of a dimension that we cannot observe is sort of a theme that we're going to run through the next yes. year. Absolutely. The, the idea that you could get some kind of um, mileage in, in, in trying to unify the forces by thinking, them, thinking about uh, physics in more than the dimensions of space-time that we uh, observe around us. Yes, absolutely. And so, so I want to take a quick detour through um, string theory. Um, so, uh, so, so S matrix theory is sort of the origination of it, right? So, 1940s, 50s, 50s, and into the early 60s. Um, I think we touched on this briefly in in our previous discussions. That um, as people built uh, ever more energetic particle accelerators and started to explore more and more microscopic regimes of strong interaction physics that they observed more and more um, uh, uh, short-lived particles. Um, uh, and there seemed to be some regularity to their structure. Yeah. And in trying to understand what would explain 
that regular structure. Um, well, the first thing that, that came up was uh, uh, a beautiful, not a theory per se, but a formula for what is the scattering probability of uh, uh, some of these strongly interacting particles. And so this was uh, Gabriella Veneziano, who I think you had it on one of your yeah. your other podcasts, developed yeah. this, this formula called the Veneziano amplitude, uh, which seemed to fit the data fairly well. Um, you know, 10% level. Um, and and so there seemed to be something to, you know, which, and, and the, 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 at the time, there were sort of these two strains of thinking in theoretical physics. One is sort of a, a more um, fundamentalist uh, point of view, saying that there's going to be some underlying theory, you know, along the lines of Maxwell, you know, some kind of field theory. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, quantize that field theory and you'll understand uh, physics. And the other being this more um, phenomenological uh, or, or um, um, how would I describe it? Uh, a, a sort of a more, uh, yeah, phenomenological approach to saying, okay, there's this complicated scattering of all of these parts. You know, there's a huge number of particles. We can't possibly, uh, uh, that we're seeing in these particle accelerators. So, you know, it can't be that they're all fundamental in some way. So let's just try to sort of constrain their properties using general principles of physics like uh, probability conservation and relativity and, and you know, very general principles and just say, okay, what is the most general possible uh, scattering matrix that I can um, uh, construct that uh, satisfies these fundamental constraints? But known, known principles. Known principles, but um, uh, without trying to develop some kind of underlying dynamics, just yeah. trying to write down directly the scattering matrix of the particles. And uh, and so Veneziano's approach was kind of along those lines. He just he didn't try to develop some kind of underlying dynamics. He just said, well, what's a scattering matrix I can write down which fits the data? Uh, and and he came up with this beautiful formula uh, in terms of elementary functions. Um, and 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 so you know that made people sit up and take notice. <laughs> and and then okay the the people who were more interested in the underlying explanation said well okay what could possibly be some underlying dynamics um, who you know which when we calculate the scattering in that dynamics reproduces as an output Veneziano's formula and so that's how the idea of a string arose and it it, it uh, sort of developed independently with, with in several different places um, in here in Chicago uh, with Yachira Nambu, uh, Leonard Suskin, and um, uh, Holger Nielsen in in Denmark, and and so they're credited as sort of the people who got string theory going, uh, at least as a phenomenological theory of the strong interactions by by developing the dynamics of relativistic strings. Uh, and uh, using uh, uh, that dynamics to calculate Veneziano's S matrix. Yeah, so, so Leonard Susskind uh, at Stanford, uh, I mean, th this was a really bold move, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of departing from the, I don't know how to call it, but the trend that physics was on to something a little different, isn't it? Yeah, in the in the sense that you were saying that 
the fundamental dynamical object is not a particle, but a one-dimensional string-like object. And that the thing, so, so that in other words, that not, not that each one of these particles that are being created in, in the process of scattering uh, protons and, and whatnot, that, that, that they're not separate particles, you know, each with its own identity, you know, just write, you know, you know usually in, previously people writing down particle theories would say, okay, you know, tell me what the particles are, tell me what their spins are and their charges and, and you know, write down for me uh, um, a, uh, um, uh, a, um, uh, an energy function and, and so on. And, you know, you proceed that way. Uh, and uh, and here was something different. You say, no, the particles themselves aren't, you know, their own separate individual thing distinct from all the others. Each one is itself a different state of vibration of something more fundamental, some extended object uh, that has a lot of internal degrees of freedom and depending on how those internal degrees of freedom are oscillating, you generate the different particles. Yeah, so the, it's sort of physically counterintuitive to me. I mean, so how do you extend a point particle? I mean, that seems really counterintuitive. Say that again? How do you extend, how do you have an extended particle, I, an extended thing, like a string? Yeah. Out of a it so it's um it's it's not that you're sort of stretching out a particle i mean particles are point like things right. and um and the way the way the particle physics works um is so we go back to our our discussions the last couple of days about this this paradigm of having uh fields um that are sort of distributed through space uh that carry energy and force from place to place. Um, so what you do in, uh, in, in um, uh, standard theories of particle, like the standard model, is you quantize the field. Uh, and and uh, so the quantum mechanics is applied to the field, which is sort of the wave aspect of wave particle duality. Like, you know, in Maxwell's theory, the dynamical things are electromagnetic waves. Uh, and so, uh, you know, so you say, okay, where's the particle aspect of particle physics? Uh, it's that the waves are the probability amplitudes for finding a particle somewhere. So, so, so there's this, as this wave particle duality aspect of quantum mechanics that we were discussing, uh, yesterday comes in and that the, the electromagnetic field, the chromo magnetic and electric fields of the strong interactions and also the matter fields, the electron and quarks and so on, they're all fields. So they're all sort of distributed things which propagate in wave-like manners. Um, and, the, uh, and then the particles are the distinct states of excitation of the field. So if I add an excitation to the field, it's like adding a particle. And, uh, and so this string is sort of different in that um, it's a description of the particle-like objects directly. Uh, it's not a description in terms of a field. It, it's much more rooted in the S-matrix notion of saying, well, I start off with this particle and this particle coming in in this direction, and they slam into each other, and then they scatter. 
And so it's sort of just, just directly a description of the particles themselves and the different kinds of particles as being different excitation modes of the string. So it's not that you've sort of stretched out uh, the point-like object into an extended object. It's more like the starting point is an extended object. And to the extent you have particles, it's because the string tension is very large. It's sort of the scale of the uh, size of the proton in, in energy units. And so, um, so in, under ordinary circumstances, the vibrating string looks like a particle because it's so tightly coiled that you, you know, if you don't have a powerful enough microscope, you can't see that it is, it's extended. All you can see is that it's approximately in some region. And so it looks like a particle unless you have a powerful enough microscope, and then you start seeing that it's actually extended. Yeah, so um, I, I want to get to the sort of the intuition of this. So we're not really talking about replacing a quark with a rubber band. We are really talking about sort of um, the string is an energy string, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a rubber band. Well, no, it's not. It's not a rubber band. It's 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 some mathematical idealization, um, where you say I have some some mathematical one-dimensional object, and and I'll tell you, uh, I'll write down a dynamics for how that one-dimensional object moves through space and vibrates. And uh, and actually, the quark is. Um, in, in this theory, uh, in this framework, um, is a is a, a one-dimensional extended thing. Every, every so the idea is you replace all the particles, the force carrying part, the gluons, the photons, the graviton, uh, the quarks, the electron, neutrinos, all of them. They're all different vibrational states of this one single uh, underlying constituent, namely this relativistic string. Relativistic string, it's one dimensional, you say, but we don't, we don't, so this is Planck length, though, right? I mean, you're not talking. It's very likely close to the Planck length. The vibrational, the sort of energy it would cost to add an internal vibration to, to the string um, is, is very likely enormous, close to the Planck scale. So what we're seeing when we see different quarks and, 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 uh, electrons and gluons, et cetera, those different particles are different um, low energy states of the string. They're different, you know, so, you know, there's a, what I'm saying is that the energy cost to excite a, an, uh, a generic, you know, vibration of the string is close to the Planck scale. Well, of course, the electron has a mass which is much, much, much below the Planck scale. So it's not some, it's, it's not some highly excited string it's uh, one of the lowest possible excitation states, vibrational states of the string. And, and so, so it's, um, uh, it's you, 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 what, what, what you are presupposing is that, is that there indeed is this huge gap between sort of the fundamental nature of strings, which is occurring up near the Planck scale, and its low energy manifestation as the different kinds of particles. Um, and and so um, so one has to understand why there's this big disparity in scales uh, in in energy between you know the fundamental makeup of the thing and the way we see it at low energies. Yeah. So 
it, it, there's a counterintuitive part in the sense that, you know, we talked about the classical brain failing in quantum mechanics and the classical brain likely fail in string theory too. Yeah. Um, because Planck scale is not something we can really imagine as a, as, as, um, as a physical length, right, or a physical energy state. Yeah, well, um, it's 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 a question of you know how far our imagination can can take us, the, you know how far the power of our intellect can 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 take us, and and I, I think we we sort of know that there has to be a fundamental limit um, to um, how microscopic uh, things can become, uh, and and that again goes back to the turn of the twentieth century. It's called the Planck scale because Max Planck, uh, around you know, the late 1890s, um, in trying to understand the properties of um, um, thermal radiation uh, from a hot body, um, it was one of the first sort of uh, theoretical attempts to come to grips with what eventually became quantum mechanics. And, and, and um, in fact, much of Einstein's work in quantum mechanics was devoted to understanding uh, Planck's formula for this thermal radiation, and and so so in the process of trying to understand the properties of thermal radiation, he Planck introduced his Planck's constant, which is the fundamental constant of the quantum, uh, and and so we already knew that um, there well. We knew soon afterwards that there was uh, the speed of light uh, as a fundamental. Well, we knew at that time, right? This, there's Maxwell's theory and the speed of light. So the speed of light's a, a sort of you, you treat as a fundamental constant of nature. Planck's constant you think of as another fundamental constant of nature. And Newton introduced what we also think is a fundamental constant of nature, namely the strength of gravitational interactions. Each of those fundamental three fundamental constants um has particular dimensional units uh in the sense that that um you know the speed of light is how far you travel per unit time so it's distance over time uh and or length over time um and similarly Planck's constant and Newton's constant have certain uh dimensional units of mass length certain proportionalities of mass length and time. So you take these three constants of nature, you can trade them for the for three units of measurement of mass length and time. Since they depend on mass length and time in different ways, hmm. you can say, uh, I can combine them in particular ways to make a fundamental unit of mass, a fundamental unit of length, and a fundamental unit of time. And those are the Planck length, the Planck time, and the Planck mass. Uh, sometimes the Planck mass is converted to an energy using Einstein's formula E equals mc squared. Uh, and so, so one often quotes uh, masses uh, in energy units, uh, you know, using using that that Einstein, famous Einstein formula. And so the you know the length scale uh, that's the Planck length is 10 to the minus 35 meters. Uh, the time scale is. You know, 10 to the minus 43 seconds. I mean, it's 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 you know 
extremely short time scales, extremely short length scales, yeah. uh, very high energy scales. They're very far removed from our everyday experience. And so, so, so while we, you know, don't have any, you know, uh, um, practical way of exploring the world around us at those fundamental scales, we have reason for believing that they are fundamental scales because they're built out of the fundamental constants of nature that we already know about uh, for a long time. Isn't there sort of an underlying assumption there, Emil, that the fundamental laws that we believe to be true is true in every space-time coordinate? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what, um, you know, we, one of the things we see as we look in the world around us is that, that there's no preferred direction to space. Uh, and, and so, you know, in developing theories of physics, you try to write down theories of physics that don't select a particular direction in space as being somehow special. So, yes. Every every direction in space has the same laws of physics, if you like. But we don't quite know, though, right? I mean, we haven't but, really explored the universe yet. So, so, so what I'm wondering is, um, is it sort of localization phenomenon? Yeah, yeah. So, so I I should of course um, <laughs> heap a big caveat onto what I just said, which is that when we're dealing with something like the Kaluza Klein theory. Of course, we're singling out one direction of space to be special, that being namely the one that's the circle, <laughs> as opposed to the other three, which are, you know, macroscopic. Um, so, um, so I should what I should I should qualify what I just said by saying that when we write the laws of physics, we don't write laws that have preferred directions of space. Uh, so the 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 specialness potential specialness of some particular direction of space or some particular place uh, is not a feature of the equations that you're writing, but of the particular solution to the equations that you're studying. Okay, so we, you know, we have to distinguish, as, as we did in our first two discussions, the laws of evolution and then the um, uh, initial conditions that we apply them to. So what Kaluza and Klein say is that if, okay, if we if we set the universe up in a situation where there are three big directions of space and then this tiny circle, then out comes Maxwell's theory as a low energy approximation to Einstein's theory in one higher dimension. Um, it's not something you put in uh, except as a statement of what the initial setup is uh, in which you're gonna in which you're gonna solve the equations. Yeah, you dash the hopes of every human who believes he or she is special. Um, well, get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to touch uh, very quickly on um, historical context again. So the reggae theory and bootstrap models. So late 60s um, or 60s, right? So what was that about? Yeah, so so this was part of this, this um, uh, whole philosophy of S matrix theory and 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 trying to uh, quantify in formulas uh, the structure of the S matrix and some and its its um, mathematical properties and uh, and so um, uh, so it the the uh, 
Reggie, who is an Italian physicist, um, uh, was developing certain properties of of how scattering looks if you look at it in in different um, um, uh, frames of ref not frames of reference exactly, but sort of different pictures of of how the scattering takes place. You yeah. know, it, so you know one way of thinking scattering is two particles come together and then they form some intermediate, you know, excited state, and then they decay again. Uh, another way is two particles go by each other, and then they exchange a particle. Um, and what was being seen in the strong interactions was that um, uh, you could describe the scattering in either of those ways, um, and, uh, um, and that seemed to be some relation between the two, which people called duality. Duality is a very overused word in particle <laughs> physics, unfortunately. But yeah. anyway, um, this this feature of the scattering um, that came out of uh, of Reggie's uh, analysis was something that uh, is very natural in Veneziano's formula, and therefore, because string theory predicted the Veneziano formula, it became a proper. It it, it was seen as a uh, a key feature of string theory. Is this the same as we talked about yesterday that if you plot mass against spin, you get some sort of straight line? Yeah, so 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 those um, those straight lines are called Reggie trajectories. Yeah, and and uh, uh, and and so the fact that the particle masses and spins fit on some regular array, uh, once you sort of plugged it into the scattering dynamics. Uh, yields this relation between you know this kind of scattering and this kind of exchange scattering, uh, and and so so yes, uh, it's it 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 became part of the development of the S matrix theory of strings. Yeah, so then we get into the dual resonance model. Uh, I know nothing about this, and you know I'm uh, reading from Wikipedia, uh, and. Uh, Venizanio is here in 1968. So the, the dual resonance model, um, what is that about? Uh, so so that was the 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 attempt to um, you know put down in formulas these ideas that were floating around about scattering duality uh, uh, and uh, the Veneziano formula and all. It, it, it's all sort of part of the same development. I'm not sure it's it's worth going into the the weeds about about what it is, um, uh, especially since this is sort of um, part of the development of string theory uh, as a theory of the strong interactions. And very shortly after its development, it was abandoned <laughs> as a theory of the strong interactions. Yeah. And the reason it was abandoned, um, part of the reason it was abandoned, is that people discovered that that quarks were real things. When quarks were first invented by Gelman uh, in the early 1960s as a way to explain certain patterns uh, among this vast zoo of strongly interacting particles, People treated them as some sort of a mathematical abstraction that didn't have any sort of reality. And but once people cranked the energy of the accelerators up enough, you could see them. They started seeing the quarks. Yeah. They didn't see the quarks in isolation. What they saw was that if you you know slammed an electron into a proton, uh, 
that occasionally you would hit something hard. And um, and so so it seemed like there was some kind of substructure, you know, within the proton, there seemed to be something, you know, hard particle-like thing inside it, um, you know, which argues, which is very counter to this sort of big floppy string where you say the energy is sort of distributed along the line and it's not in any one place, it's, you know, distributed throughout the string. And so string theory had a hard time accommodating um, these hard scattering events that people were seeing um, in in particle accelerators. And of course, not long after people developed the theory of, of quantum chromodynamics uh, that we were talking about earlier, yeah. which is now, you know, uh, part of the standard model and, and what we think is, is the underlying explanation for how the strong interactions work uh, at the level of the standard model. And so, so um, however, uh, two useful things came out of this um, period of development. One was, in fact, the idea that when you scatter strings, they don't like to scatter in such a way that the the they they bounce off of each other in some some you know hard way. Um, yeah. That that what they tend to like to do is they combine. If you if you send them at each other with 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 a, a lot of energy and momentum, what they like to do is they like to take that energy and momentum and you know this part and 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 you know combine together to form um, uh, an excited string as as the intermediate state. So like you know two strings come in, they form one bigger string, but as they come in, if they're coming in with a lot of relative momentum. Um, you know, this piece, when they combine into one string, you know, this piece is still going this way <laughs> and this piece is still going this way. So how do they accommodate that? Well, they just keep going that way. But what happens is that the string stretches in between. So mm -hmm. what you make as a big intermediate state is a, a highly excited stretched string. And then they come back together and do what they want to do. Um, but but the point is that that there's no hard scattering involved. It's just you know it take the string takes that energy and uses it to make more bigger, floppier, stretchier strings. And yes. so so that that turns out to be useful later on when we come to how string theory fixes some problems in gravity. Hmm. So so let's think. Let's uh, we didn't we haven't set the context for string theory yet. So let's talk bit about it. So we talked a bit about this as a sort of Russian doll game that God is playing with us. Mm. And we keep going in and we find new things. We find molecules, atoms, protons, neutrons, quarks. Right. And now inside the quarks, there are these things called strings. Um, they're not physical strings. They are sort of energy strings, right? Yeah, it, well, it's a question of what, how much reality you want to ascribe to these things. Um, uh, so um, the 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 theory will predict for you certain behaviors, which uh, you know, given enough, so if you if you had enough energy, you know, just as a as an intellectual exercise, yeah. if you had enough energy to reach these Planck scales and collide two string two two particles together, you know, prediction of the theory would be that indeed you would make a 
big floppy string as a as a, uh, a sort of a resonance or, or intermediate uh, configuration of the you dynamics. Were colliding quarks at that point, or if you had, if you were to collide, well, if you were to collide two protons, inside the protons are the quarks, and this yeah. is what we do at the LHC, right? We collide protons. What happens is that inside the proton are three quarks, and you rely on the quarks hitting each other. Um, uh, and 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 so yeah, um, you know, basically at some point, you know, you you have to reach the energy where you know some of the constituents have enough colliding energy to make an excited string. And if you had you know a Planckian accelerator, the prediction of string theory is that there would be intermediate states uh in in the dynamics which are these big floppy strings so but we are colliding protons at let's LHC. we are yeah. colliding them so we don't have enough energy to really get to the string string level that's right so so if the string if the tip so string theory has a natural length scale in it called the string tension so it's it's um so we can ask Okay, this string is this like stretchy, you know, vibrating thing. Um, the one characteristic of the string is how much energy does it cost you to stretch at a given length? Hmm. Okay, and so um, if we use you know this Planckian concept of trading mass for energy for length for time using the fundamental constants of nature. Uh, this energy per unit length is itself a length scale. And, uh, and so, um, uh, basically it just involves, uh, app, you know, multiplying it by the appropriate power of Planck's constant. Hmm. And so, so there's a fundamental length scale associated to the vibrational energy of the string. And it's believed that that energy scale is around the unification scale, either at the Planck scale or not far below the Planck scale. So you're talking about a disparity in energies between the LHC, which is an energy scale, uh, which is a thousand times the, mo the proton mass, and the string scale, which is 16 orders of magnitude beyond that. So it's like it's not like we're going to build a string accelerator, you know, in in the next century. I mean, it's just it's just way beyond what is technologically feasible by any civilization. <laughs> or we need uh, a different. You know, excuse those, me. Or What's we that? need a president. You know, one of those. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So. So, so let's go back to, uh, so you were at Princeton in the 80s, and the, the, so, so string theory, as you say, sort of got into some maybe little bit of a lull. It became sort of a backwater, if you like. <laughs> uh, and and it, it, it was because, it wasn't because string theory wasn't interesting, it was that it wasn't the right theory for the strong interactions. And um, and and we had a theory of the strong interactions. We had this, uh, you know, Maxwell-like theory of quantum chromodynamics, and and which was immensely successful. I mean, it just you know it got better and better as 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 we understood it more and more for explaining the data coming out of particle accelerators. 
So, so string theory was sort of dropped. It was dropped for the reason that it wasn't fitting the data as well as this alternative uh, of you know quantum chromodynamics. Uh, but also it had this certain, um, what from the point of view of particle physics seemed to be drawbacks. One was what I explained earlier that it didn't seem to have this hard scattering feature that was being seen in accelerators. Uh, when we collide particles, you know, they can bounce off of each other in, in, in hard ways. Um, that was one. Um, another uh, was that uh, in in writing down the theory and and um, um, calculating the spectrum of vibrational excitations of the string, it seemed like there was always in the spectrum of string excitations a um, spin two particle, and that particle was massless. Um, so if you ask, you know, where do we see a spin two particle in nature, massless spin two particle in nature? Uh, well, gravity. The graviton is a massless spin two particle. And moreover, when people look more carefully at the um, uh, the S matrix uh, of of the kinds of strings that describe this spin two particle, one saw that they were the scattering processes of gravitons that you calculate from Einstein's theory. So, so this gave um, so around 1974. Uh, Joel Schwartz, John Schwartz, the same Schwartz that became prominent later in, in the revival of string theory in the 80s, uh, and Tamiyaki Yoneya in, in, in Japan, uh, proposed that string theory wasn't uh, supposed to be a theory of the strong interactions like we originally thought, but it was going to be a theory of gravity. And that was exciting. So without knowing anything about it, Dario, so the, the quantum chromodynamics appears to be a little bit of a band-aid to me. Uh, at least it sounds like a band-aid. Uh, it, is, it is not really getting into sort of a fundamental question, is it? I mean, it's trying to explain some aspects of the questions we're asking, but not completely. Well, so quantum chromodynamics uh, is, is it, you know, we're not asking it to explain everything. We're asking it to explain the internal structure of neutrons and protons and other strongly interacting particles. And it does that exceedingly well. Yeah. Um, and so it, so it earned its place as a component of the standard model. Um, uh, and string theory lost it, you know, lost out in that, in that, uh, <laughs> that battle. Yeah. Um, Okay, so it, it came back later when we figured out how to incorporate quantum chromodynamics together with gravity uh, and the other fundamental forces in string theory. Um, and, and that was the, the sort of the, um, the key advance uh, that came along in the, in the uh, uh, early to mid 1980s. So the, the, the real prize here is to explain gravity. I mean, yes. that is what we're after. Right. Uh, any sort of fine explanation of anything else is interesting, but not necessarily that useful from a from a from a unification perspective. Well, we we eventually do want to have a home for all of the fundamental forces in in some framework that 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 has gravity as well, and so it's not like you know, the other forces are somehow you know uh, uh, interesting, but you know. Uh, 
quaint <laughs> byproduct of something. Uh, you know, we, we really want some some framework, uh, some conceptual um, underpinning uh, that uh, that incorporates all of the fundamental forces, and ideally in such a way that um, you understand why they're supposed to be there. <clears throat> you know, why are there so many kinds of quarks? You know, why are, are the strong interactions the way they are? Why are the weak interactions? You know, why is Maxwell's theory the way it is? Uh, why is gravity the way, you know, you want some some kind of deeper understanding of why the world has these things in it. Right. So you have to peel, you have to peel away to the, to the foundation. Right. Uh, again and again. And so, so the first superstring revolution that you were part of, um, there, there was something in the water in New Jersey, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you guys were drinking, but um, you came up with some very interesting ideas. Yeah, well, so um, uh, if you indulge me as, a, if I, as I reminisce a bit. Um, so, um, well, before I entered the things, I, I was, uh, you know, still in high school when, when Shirk and Schwartz and Yunea were <laughs> proposing that... Um, uh, string theory was a the theory of gravity, uh, and there there were actually attractive reasons for trying to do so, which I touched on a little earlier. This idea that strings don't like to scatter in in some some energetic way, uh, or or at least that that the strength of their scattering um, is somehow ameliorated by the diffuseness of the energy of the string, and the place that comes into play is that. There are problems with trying to quantize gravity the way you quantize the other fundamental forces. The other fundamental forces, as we were discussing in previous sessions, they have some fixed charges. Um, and so the strength of scattering uh, only changes mildly uh, as you change the energy of the collision. But in gravity, because the charge is the energy, uh, of a photon or gluon or a quark or something, uh, it, you know, it's energy or mass, okay? But um, but as we've been saying, you know, those are fungible concepts uh, according to Einstein, and and so so in particular, if you take two highly energetic particles and you collide them at higher and higher energy, the strength of their scattering through gravity becomes stronger and stronger, and at the Planck length. Uh, the uh, the scattering becomes uncontrollably strong, and so and and what that means is that is that you can't make any reasonable approximation to what's going on at that energy scale. Even worse than that, uh, in quantum physics, um, the way that scattering you, you usually conceptualize scattering is that you make a series of successive approximations uh, to the scattering, starting off with, uh, you know, um, uh, a sort of a first approximation, and then you try to refine it. And the refining of the approximation involves um, what are called virtual processes, where you create particle-antiparticle pairs, and they run around and scatter and then recombine. And you have, and because it's quantum mechanics, 
uh, it deals with probabilities. And so you have to sum up the probabilities for all of these virtual processes happening. And um, and when you do that, uh, just trying to follow the, the model of all the other forces and quantize gravity in that way, what you find is that when you sum over all of these virtual processes, the um, uh, the amplitudes, the probabilities for those processes happening, get wor uh, higher and higher uh, as you as the virtual processes are more and more energetic, and you can't control it because uh, you know quantum mechanics just says you have to include all of them. Uh, you can't throw any of these processes away, and so so quantum gravity treated as you treat the other forces of the standard model has a a a, a a high energy problem that it becomes uncontrollably wild when you get to higher energies and the higher energies have to be included because they appear as part of the successive approximation scheme of including more and more virtual uh, scatterings and and so the so string theory you know so coming back to string theory why does string theory help you well string theory doesn't like to have these violent scatterings and so what happens is that as you reach the scale of the string tension, um, what happens instead of having harder and harder virtual scatterings, you start making more vibrating strings. And string theory ameliorates the high energy problem of gravitational scattering in quantum theory. And so that was one of the major things that, that led people to think, okay, not only does the theory naturally, automatically seeming have this massless spin two particle, which is the quantum of gravity. Moreover, string theory itself cures the problems of trying to quantize that graviton using conventional techniques. Yeah, so mathematics cures a lot of things. If you have the mathematics. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the sort of, the, I mean, we have already left sort of the, the ability to have a physical intuition yep. to this world because we are at scales that we can never reach. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, only mathematics remains. And so Math you, mathematics you know, remains and, and, um, uh, and also, um, all of the history of successes in particle physics that comes before you. Yeah, so we have some experience. We have some intuition what yes. things could look like, but then we cannot prove them, right? Right. But so, uh, so yeah. So if proof is required to be experimental proof, then no. Um, uh, experimental evidence for string theory is essentially non-existent. Um, and, and so, um, so indeed it's a, it's a big gamble. Uh, you know, it may, may not pay out, but the things that, that keep us intrigued and, and, you know, hard at work, um, are, uh, the structures that we see emerging uh, as we understand the theory more and more. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you know, as we 
have again been discussing through our, our march through the history of theoretical physics that developments in mathematics and developments in physics are come hand in hand. Yeah. And and so one thing is for sure is that string theory is a vast mathematical structure that brings together threads of mathematics that um, were not ever appearing in theoretical physics before, but make an appearance in string theory. Uh, and so, so, you know, if if a if you want to place a bet on a theory, you know, having some relevance to to nature, the fact that it incorporates more and more of fundamental mathematics as you develop it is uh, an encouraging sign. Yeah, I agree. Um... There's a larger philosophical question here. You know, you know, I'm not a philosopher, not a physicist, but I was an engineer, and mm -hmm. I was a very bad one at it. So, um, I I think we're approaching a regime where really only mathematics remain. Uh, perhaps this was sort of the the ultimate goal, which is it is it is not really what you try to measure, it is really what you try to imagine. So th there is a limit to measurement, but actually there is no limit to imagination. Yeah. And that, might, of course, that, yeah, sorry. You know, we might be teaching that regime, perhaps. Yeah, well, of course, that's the, um, uh, the ever-present danger <laughs> is, um, is that we're, we're trying to extrapolate from what we know about the standard model and about Einstein's theory and about how quantum mechanics and field theory work and trying to extrapolate, you know, orders and orders of magnitude beyond things that we can measure. And, um, you know, you make a little mistake in that extrapolation and, you know, the world goes this way and your imagination goes that way and uh, you quickly find yourself, uh, uh, you know, lost in in uh, um, uh, the uh, clouds <laughs> of your imagination rather but, than but, something that's real. But but I should say, you know, it it as you have mentioned a number of times, you know, nature likes to play cruel jokes. Uh, if uh, it, it would indeed be a cruel joke. If there was this uh, vast um, and elegant mathematical structure uh, that seems to incorporate all the stuff that we know about in particle physics, and yet it's not the right theory, <laughs> right? Yeah, that would so, be that would be a cruel joke, uh, so but it's certainly possible. Yeah, let me turn that around, Emil. So, a mathematical construct that is consistent. Does it really mean? Does it really matter if it is not the quote-unquote right theory? I mean, let me ask it differently. Um, if we believe that we cannot experimentally show beyond certain scales, then it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, we, we want a very elegant view of how things could be. And if, if God doesn't like it, she can come down and you know tell us differently. But at that point, we're going to assert 
this is how things are. Well, um, maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, one thing for sure is that mathematicians won't care. I mean, mathematicians are very happy that string theory um, came out of particle yeah. physics because it's given them vast new areas of of mathematics to explore. And so, you know, that that will that will go on no matter whether string theory is the right theory of the world or not. Um, but um, but again, uh, you know, I have to to say there 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 are certain things that string theory does that no conventional way of quantizing gravity can do. And for right. that reason, I think uh, um, uh, that I, I regard as as um, an, another sort of strong piece of evidence that string theory is on the right track. And, and here, what I have in mind is, uh, you know, a by now almost 50-year-old puzzle raised by uh, Hawking uh, regarding uh, how black holes and quantum mechanics fit together um, in Einstein's theory. And uh, uh, string theory, as far as I'm concerned, is is has the only um, uh, well, it's right now it's the beginnings of a quantitative understanding of the resolution of Hawking's paradox. Um, and yeah. that's something we talked about in a in a previous uh, podcast. Yeah, so um, this snacking question, uh, which direction to come from and which direction to head? Yeah, so you could take quantum mechanics as the truth. Then you have to wonder if space-time is is as a quantized um, object, mm -hmm. um, or you come from uh, ancient theory of gravity, and then you know, sort of backpedal <laughs> into into gravity. It appears to me the former is a stronger way to go. Well, so so yeah. Um, you know, different people uh, sometimes come at the same problem from different perspectives. And, um, you know, the, the people, bef you know, prior to the advent of string theory as a theory of unification, um, you know, people had been trying this sort of conventional approach of saying, well, Einstein's theory is so beautiful, um, it must be right. And and all we have to do is figure out how to quantize it, like we know how to quantize all of the other forces. And so so there's a certain you know approach which sort of says Einstein's theory is fundamental, and uh, we we need to figure out how to modify you know how quantum mechanics fits into it in order to to get the the things to work out. There's a there's and, a level of fear. And the string and the the string theory community was sort of coming from the particle physics end of things. And you know, thinking about scattering of particles and S matrices and so on, and saying that you know the quantum mechanics of particle scattering is the thing that's fundamental. And if Einstein's theory has to be modified to figure out how you know these highly energetic processes work, then so be it. Um, and and so that's of course the avenue that we've been pursuing is that in fact string theory is um, a um, departure from Einstein's theory, 
um, that fixes some of the problems of Einstein's theory and develops uh, new structures that um, uh, are, are, you know, we're first still trying to um, uh, wrap our, our heads around. Um, and, uh, you know, we can, we can get into some of that. Um, I, I think our, our time is, is rapidly closing. I don't know if we, we want to schedule a, a, a fourth yeah. session. But yeah, we, can, we can do another one anyway. I think um, there's... I think we need it because we still haven't gotten to the first super string resolution revolution. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, Emil? Uh, come on. Uh, so yeah, so we'll, we'll come back. Um, but but there is this sort of fundamental tension, as you say, which is mathematicians love string theory. Um, without knowing much of mathematics, I find it beautiful. I know nothing about it. I mean, even people who know nothing about it, um, it likes its elegance. Um, and then we have this beautiful theory on the other side that's also beautiful and elegant. But then they don't, they don't <laughs> play well with each other. So there's a there's a nagging tension in physics, and, and that's a beautiful thing, I think. Yeah. Um, so. Um, I think the where the where the well, string theory. Um, I, I think it's all all of the of what we understand about it at the moment. I think is telling us that it resolves a lot of the conceptual issues with with Einstein's theory um, by enlarging the mathematical structure um, beyond. So, so as we were discussing in in you know in a previous session, um, Einstein's theory really is the sort of the theory of space and time uh, that the gravitational field is itself the geometry of space and time. Uh, and what string theory is turning out to be is a, an extension or a, um, uh, a modification of our notions of what geometry looks like uh, when we get to short distances um, where quantum effects become important. And uh, so it'd probably be useful to talk about some of that. Um, let me say one one thing um, about sort of like how how does Einstein's theory fit with string theory? So so one thing we already covered, namely that string theory has within it this massless spin two particle, the graviton, and the interactions of you know scattering gravitons work out just right. Or you can say, okay, that's just one or two gravitons. Where does the geometry of space-time come in? And the way it comes in is uh, connected with some of the work I was involved with in the mid-1980s. Namely, if you say, I have a string you know, propagating in some curved geometry. Can I have any curved geometry? You know, can, can I have a string propagating in any curved geometry I like? Or does the curved geometry have to satisfy some conditions? In order for the string to to have have a sensible description, 
And the answer turns out to be yes, the string does need to satisfy certain, the, 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 the geometry needs to satisfy certain equations in order for the string to consistently propagate on it. And those equations are Einstein's equations. These are closed, closed strings? Closed strings, yes. So little loops of string. Uh, the graviton is the lowest excitation, one of the lowest excitations of a loop, closed loop of string. And, uh, and for that loop of string to propagate consistently uh, in space-time, uh, that space-time needs to satisfy uh, Einstein's field equations. Together with additional matter fields, which are all part of the part and parcel of the, the, the baggage you need to bring along <laughs> in order to have string theory. Um, but uh, uh, but this, it, the, the reason it's, it's appealing as a, as a fun, fundamental um, con construction is that there's this sort of like underlying constituent, the string, and the string is telling the space-time that it's in what to do. <laughs> right. Um, and and so 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 that's I think to me one of the the a part of the the fundamental appeal of string theory is that and 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 one has this experience when one has worked in it long enough one has this experience over and over again of things you didn't ask the theory to do but that just present themselves to you. Right. And so you have the feeling not that you're inventing something, but that you're discovering something. Yes. Yeah. So I'm. Yeah. So we had to come back and so <laughs> we, we ran out of time. But I I feel like any consistent, beautiful mathematics has to be right. Um, I don't think we have had many instances of consistent, beautiful math being wrong in the physical sense. At least I can think of any, but um, this is where we are with string theory, I think. Yeah, well, so um, mathematics is, uh, is, is a sort of a closed thing, right? It's, it's, it's sort of pure thought. Um, and so the, as long as you haven't made a mistake in proving your theorem, it's it has to be right, <laughs> um, and and so the 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 real question is, um, is that mathematics does that mathematics that is intrinsically right in and of itself uh, as a construct of the human mind, does it have does it appear in nature in some way? Um, and there are things in mathematics that I don't know, at least not yet. How they appear in nature. There's there's a whole branch of mathematics called number theory, which is just about the relations between numbers. Um, a famous instance of this is something called Fermat's last theorem, which you might have heard of, was yeah. proved not not long ago, uh, and and made made the popular press. You know, Fermat's <laughs> last theorem is is some you know conjecture that Fermat made you know in the in the early 19th century. And remained unproven for for you know two centuries, and uh, okay, but it's some statement about the properties of numbers. I don't know of any physical manifestation of the that property of numbers. Doesn't <laughs> um, not to say that there isn't one, um, and there are certain number theoretic aspects. <clears throat> 
of, of you know, certain constructions one does in string theory. It's not to say that you know, number theory doesn't appear in string theory and string theory doesn't appear in physics. It's just that it's, it's rather far removed from, uh, from any, um, uh, any application to uh, you know, physical dynamics. Yeah, so, so let me finish up with this, Emil. So let me try this, and I don't think you will agree with this. So if, if, uh, if our limitation is at 10, 10 to the power minus 16 meters, and we cannot go anything further than that, I'm just making up a number. Yeah. And reality exists at 10 to the power minus 35 meters. Between 10 to the power minus 16 and 10 to the power minus 35 is theater. It's about beauty. It's about dramatics. It's about art and ideas. It doesn't really matter because people never know. <laughs> we, can, we can find out. In, in that sense, yes, it's kind of an intellectual exercise. Um, and, and you say, well, it's not experimentally verified. So you guys are just having fun playing games. Uh, and, and to a large extent, yes, that's true. Um, we're, we're spinning a yarn, you know, telling a tale of what the world might be like at, in, in unobservably small domains. Um, and, uh, uh, and so it may remain so. You know, there's no guarantee that we will find uh, a, an experimental shred of evidence that string theory is the fundamental theory of nature. Do we really need uh, it? It's, it's sort of do, a big so, so, and you say, okay, do we need it? Um, it won't prevent string theory from going on purely because as an, as an intellectual exercise in and of itself, it is extremely rich. Yeah. That, that, it, that it's, you know, you say there's a power of ideas and string theory is full of ideas and those ideas have consequences they don't have necessarily consequences in the real ex world of experiment, but they have consequences in and of themselves in the world of ideas. And in the sense that, you know, you you discover something new in string theory, and it leads to some new set of ideas, you know, in another branch of string theory. And so there's this sort of like burgeoning um, um, circle of ideas uh, or, or collection of of uh, concepts that are all knit together by this one underlying idea that string that 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 of of the dynamics of extended objects in quantum you know quantum mechanics of extended objects uh, that uh, you know has an extremely rich life of its own as an idea. Yeah, I have a nagging feeling, Emil, that God is going to be disappointed. Uh, she's going to say, I set this up so that these guys will keep creating bigger and bigger accelerators. <laughs> They'll never find the truth. Uh, suppose we pull back and say no more accelerators. It's only imagination that remains. It's only mathematics that remains. That might be a way to defeat God. Well, I don't know. It's a it's a it's a parlor game people sometimes play, a sort of like a counterfactual history, uh, asking the question, you know, what if we stopped building accelerators in you know 1960? <laughs> or 1930, or you know, move the clock back as far as you want, you know, back to Newton. 
you know, would would Newton have discovered the standard model just by pure thought? <laughs> the answer is probably not. There are too many pieces missing that he didn't know about. Um, and so you could ask the question here is like, are there pieces of the puzzle that, uh, you know, we haven't discovered yet in, at the LHC and the accelerators that came before it that are that are crucial for coming up with, you know, the ultimate theory. And so it's it's our hubris to think that the answer to that question is no, that we are that we we have discovered all the pieces and we just have to figure out how they fit together. Yeah. I have a bias. I only like theory, no experiment. Uh, well, good for you. <laughs> Excellent. So it looks like we have to come back and have another session. I think so. Um, so should we do that tomorrow or Sunday? What is your... Um, yeah, 